Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have uh, Rebecca Henderson here with me from Boston. Welcome to my podcast, Rebecca. Besna, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I'm really happy that our paths have crossed. And, and it's also thanks to our friend uh, Rainier Indal, the, the founder of Suma Equity. Indeed. Uh, Rainier has been a good friend for several years now and mm. a complete inspiration in my own work. So uh, he's, uh, he's a great person to network through. Really. And just as a short intro, uh, Rebecca is a renowned professor at Harvard Business School, a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economics Research, and also a fellow of both the British Academy and of the American Academy of Arts and uh, Sciences. And she's an expert on innovation and organizational change, and her research explores how much the private sector can play a major role in building a more sustainable uh, economy. But for me, uh, Rebecca represents an important balance as well. Um, the balance between sharp intellect, thorough knowledge of business, and also deep uh, humanity. And I believe that leaders need to do exactly that, to also tap into the deep humanity for, for guidance, actually. What do you think, Rebecca? Well, Vesna, first, uh, thank you for the, for the compliment. I think it's essential that we ground ourselves in, in who we are, uh, whether we call it our faith traditions or spirituality or simply who you are as a whole person that really engaging that as we think about the work uh, that we're, we're all trying to get done and which can get so overwhelming mm. and so stressful that we need to check back in to the fact that we're animals, to the fact that we're people, that we're family members, that we're friends. Uh, because I think one of the big problems in our culture at the moment is exactly the separation between business and the rest of our lives. Mm. And that's a, a gap we really need to bridge. I'm just curious, what at this point in time in your life, what do you think is the future that you would like, like to see? I'd really like us to address the problem of climate change and biodiversity. I'd like us to learn to cherish the planet we live on and realize that it's vital to our long-term survival and those of our children. I'd like to see an equitable world. One of my friends says we should be treating our employees as if everyone was someone's precious child. Mm -hmm. That treating everyone with dignity and respect, regardless of their ethnicity or the color of their skin, a world in which every child has an opportunity to excel, uh, regardless of where they're born, where business and government work in partnership, where business does what it does, which is amazing innovation and creativity and creating jobs and products that people need, and government does what ideally it should do, which is setting the rules of the game. So making sure that business doesn't uh, create problems as a byproduct. I'm a huge fan, for example, of uh, putting a price on burning fossil fuels so that we all know how much damage we're causing and using a market mechanism to address the problem of climate change. But, you know, government also has to think about healthcare and education and good roads. And, uh, and then, of course, I like world peace as well. 
which, no, I mean, seriously, I, I thought for many years we didn't need to worry, but there's increasing tension across the planet. And I... <laughs> I hope we make artificial intelligence our servant and not our master. I was at a fascinating conference with a bunch of economists a couple of years ago now, and uh, each of us was asked to contribute because we had a particular discipline. So I'm in innovation. There was someone there from trade, someone from labor. We went around the room. Everyone gave a paper, and all of us pretty much said AI could be one of the great boons to mankind. I mean, a huge augmentation of productivity and uh, really getting rid of all those junk jobs and freeing us up to do more productive things with their lives. And then there was a pause, if we can get the politics right. Because the danger, of course, is AI is just another concentration of wealth and power in the hands of, of those who have access. So um, I pretty much want a, a healed world <laughs> in harmony. <laughs> That's a great, it could almost work like a manifesto that we can sign, many of us actually. Yeah, fantastic. I was also thinking about your book that was released last year, Reimagining Capitalism in a World uh, on Fire. And it, the book has actually spread like fire, I would say. And um, I think it's, it's beautiful. Um, it's about capitalism. It's about how we've failed to reimagine capitalism so that it's not only an engine of prosperity, but also a system that is in harmony uh, with life, right? With, with the environment, the people and the systems. So it's a fantastic wake up call that, that book. And it's also, I think, a beautiful practical guide on how really to have change take place and, and also filled with a lot of fascinating stories. Uh, of companies that have made uh, great steps uh, towards this reimagined uh, capitalism. But there is, uh, I think, an extraordinary opportunity on the table that you talk about for those who can really get it right. But how would you describe that opportunity to business leaders who are listening here now? So, Vesna, thanks for the kind words about my book. And thank you for saying it's practical. I tried to write a practical book. You know, I have, my training is in engineering and in economics. I've been working with companies for years. My early work was all about discontinuous change. How do firms respond to what's happening in the world? And for me, the way to think about the need to step up on these great social problems like environment and um and inequality and all the tensions we have in our world. You know, why should business take this seriously given everyone is super busy and I have to make payroll and life is hard? You know, why should you do this? Two big reasons. Actually, it's one big reason. No, no, two. First reason, there's lots of money to be made. I know you hear that a lot. Everyone who's in this space, oh, you know, it's a win-win. I'm not telling you that. I'm not telling you it's easy. But here are two things to think about. First, when you start to focus on these problems, you begin to see how the world is changing. And you begin to see how your customers and your employees are starting to really engage with these issues. Uh, the young people in particular are really concerned about the kind of world that we're going to leave to them. I remember one CEO five years ago who I knew well called me up and said, you know, Rebecca, you know, I think all this sustainability stuff is bullshit, right? And I said, yes, because <laughs> I did. And he said, but everyone I'm trying to hire thinks it's important. And, you know, would you come and tell us about it? 
So I started to work with him and it turned out that not only was it easier to hire when he started to really think about the value he was creating in the world. And this was a man who'd spent his whole career maximizing shareholder value. He had a background as an investment banker and he was creating a lot of shareholder value. But when you change the frame and say, what is it we're doing in the world? What value are we creating? He happened to be in the pet business. And it turns out that making pets healthier is hugely value creating. It strengthens families. It helps people in, who are sick. I mean, it's, it's really an amazing thing to do. Mm. And when you make that the center of the firm, you both identify new opportunities, new ways to make money. Think of Elon Musk going, whoa, electric cars are the future and building a car company that's worth more than most other car companies or the people in plant-based foods. Once you start thinking about we have to find a move away from red meat, all kinds of opportunities open up. So there's the kind of strategic opportunities. But what also happens is that the way you run the firm changes and the level of engagement and productivity and creativity increases enormously. Again, I know this is easy to say. I want to stress it's not easy to do. To really rebuild your company around authentic purpose so that people think you're for real, to really empower the people that are working for you so they can, when they become excited about what you're doing and they want to bring their identities to work, you design jobs so that they can move things forward and make a difference. When you can do that, both productivity and innovation increase enormously. You know, everybody needs a decent wage. Money's important, but nearly everyone wants to work for something more than money. They want to think that their work makes a difference, that they can contribute. So we have a lot of literature suggesting this so-called intrinsic motivation is really very powerful. The other thing that happens in a really authentically driven purpose company is people start to trust each other. Instead of it being, well, you know, I, I'm in marketing, you're in manufacturing, I, here are my outcomes. And all the, I'm sure no one listening runs a company like this or works for a company like this, but all those silos, all that suspicion, when you really have a shared mission and people think you're for real, levels of trust go right up. I mean, I'm an economist by training. About 15 years ago, we found in studying productivity that the most productive firms in every industry, the top decile, were on average more than twice as productive as the bottom decile. Economists hated this result. I spent years in windowless conference rooms trying to make it go away. We thought initially we must have mismeasured, not controlling for differences in capital or prices in the market or education of the workforce. And I promise you, study after study, better and better and better controls, we could not make this result go away. There's something about the top 10, 20% of firms in every industry that makes them much more productive. And now we have very good data that it's correlated with high performance work systems. What does that mean? Treating people with dignity and respect, high levels of communication, promoting people on the basis of performance, real performance, not on the basis of numbers, common commitment to the strategy of the company. And so this is not some hand-waving thing. I mean, personally, you probably know about Zainab Tom's work at MIT. Do you know Zainab? 
Yeah, I've heard of that. And also I'm thinking about George Serafim, of course, as well. Exactly. And his wonderful paper using employee surveys from 4 million employees and really getting a good measure of purpose. Mm. So is my company serious about purpose? Do I feel my work makes a difference in the world? A really good measure. And I love his result, right? Mm. Which is if you just simply take that measure of purpose and run it against financial performance, you don't get much. But if you ask, say... I have high purpose and I understand how it's embedded in the strategy, then you see very significant financial outperformance. And Zainab's work at MIT showing that this is true in the retail sector, the least highly skilled, most high turnover of most sectors, showing that firms that, that do this can really see significant improvements in performance. So there's money to be made. I mean, can, can I tell a story here? Sure. Well, you probably know this story. Because you know Rainier, I want to tell the story of Eric Osmondson and Norsk Genvinning. <laughs> Norsk Genvinning. So uh, Eric Osmondson was a young man in private, not that young, I guess I'm getting so old that everyone seems young, had a very good career in private equity when he decided to move into the waste business. Now, this is hardly sexy, but Eric decided he really wanted to make a difference in the world. And it turns out that if we can change the way we handle our, our trash, our garbage, you can reduce global greenhouse gas emissions by millions of tons. It's the waste business is one of the big sources of emissions. So if you could transform the industry from throwing things into a hole in the ground to high-tech recycling, um, I'm sure you've had guests on the show talking about uh, the circular economy and really creating a circular economy and mining the waste stream for metals and nutrients. I mean, the fact that we throw away food is just like, no, no, let's recycle it. Um, and Eric decided this is what he wanted to do. So he goes into the business, becomes the CEO of a company, and discovers the whole industry is totally corrupt, that people are disposing of garbage illegally, mislabeling it, and shipping it to the developing world. I mean, this is a really kind of yucky kind of place. And he decided he wanted to run clean. He came out publicly saying the industry was corrupt. He announced that his company was not going to do that. Um, and <laughs> he had to get police protection for his children. I mean, this was not an easy thing to do. And uh, half of his senior team quit. His competitors sued him for bringing the industry into disrepute. He lost a lot of his customers. And, you know, there were moments when he really said, you know, do I really want to do this? And, uh, and he said, he stuck with it. And, and that's the human part. He could have walked in a moment, but he stayed. Those employees who remained were incredibly motivated. They were so excited about what he was trying to do. He became one of the most desirable employers in Norway. I mean, this is a garbage company. <laughs> And what he did was essentially introduced high-tech recycling into the business, which is, let's count it, a high barrier to entry, high-scale business. So now he has an incredibly motivated workforce, a high barrier to entry, and increasingly customers who are saying, we don't want to risk our brand name disposing of garbage illegally, and competitors who are saying, maybe the whole industry would be better off if we took this path. And regulators who are saying, okay, we haven't been really regulating and the fines have been tiny, but 
but maybe we should step up to the plate. So it's not that he's now, you know, one of the great multi-billionaires of Europe. The waste business is not a highly profitable business, but he built one of the largest firms in the area. And I, I think he's immensely proud of what he's done. And he would be the first to say it wasn't him, it was the team. Hmm. And that's, of course, what you need is, it's, again, it's the whole firm deciding that they want to build a great business and make a difference mm. in the world. No, he's a fantastic, really, uh, e example. And it is hopeful and it is helpful that companies increasingly are also saying generally that we care about society, we have broader responsibility, etc. And there are firms and CEOs that, that really mean it in a deep way. But, but still, I'm asking, why aren't there more of, of those? Right. I mean, given everything you said so far, it's like, why? No, no. And, and we could we could go through more examples. I mean, there's train technology, which does heating and ventilating equipment where the CEO thinks he can take a gigaton of carbon out of the economy mm. just by tightening up the efficiency of air conditioning and heating. And it's a boring business that's absolutely on fire and the shareholders are really excited and he's getting a significant premium. So mm. if it's so great, why isn't everyone doing it? Okay. So as it happens, I spent the first 20 years of my career thinking about this question. For many years, I was the Eastman Kodak Professor of Management at MIT, which was a coincidence, but deeply ironic one, because that's what I did. I studied firms like Kodak that were having trouble changing. I worked with Nokia. I hope some people on, uh, on the call will remember who Nokia was. In their prime, they were making a million cell phones a week. I worked with Nokia spending months in Finland trying to persuade them that Apple was a serious threat and they had to shift the basis of their business. And so I'm intimately familiar with why it's so hard. And so let me give you the low-tech answer and the high-tech answer. The low-tech answer was given to me by a taxi driver. I was once describing my PhD thesis to a taxi driver. It was a long ride. And he said, let me get this right. You got a PhD from Harvard for finding out that large firms get fat and stuck in their ways. Is, is that correct? <laughs> and I said, yeah, but it, it's, much, it's much more complicated than that. So, so let me try the high-tech answer. Why is it so hard to change? First problem. It's very tempting to believe nothing is happening. Usually the people in the industry are the last to know that there's a major shift coming. I mean, I've worked with firms where my son and my husband knew the whole industry was in disruption. And many of the middle managers are like, oh, this is going to be fine. This is just some little thing off to the side. Um, you know, AI, it's not really going to disrupt the finance business. I mean, it'll just be this little high-tech thing. It's not about our core business. And nearly everyone not in finance is like, uh, no, that's wrong. We know that's wrong. So we don't think it's happening. And you see that with sustainability. You know, climate change is someone else's business. These are public goods problems. I don't really have to respond to them. It's not really going to shift my business. So denial. Second problem, we don't think we can make any money. And, and the structural problem here is if you're a successful firm, you spent five, 10 years building the assets that make you successful in your existing business. So think about Kodak for a moment. Kodak had an amazing brand. It also had tons of photoshops right across the world. It knew a ton about printing. This is a big deal. You know, conventional photography 
They used to make it on rollers running at 30 miles an hour in a factory, laying down chemicals at micrometer tolerances in the dark. I mean, wow. (laughs) You know, talk about a barrier to entry. And now suddenly digital photography, we're not sure how we're going to sell it, who we're going to sell it to, how we're going to make money. So we don't know how we're going to make money. And then the third problem, and I think often the most important, is we're really busy and we don't have the new skills. I mean, I, I, have a, I had a contract for a book called Stuck, which was about how firms get so overloaded, they're so busy solving problems all the time that there's no time to step back and say, whoa, the industry is really changing, we should do something about it. And if everyone's measured on short-term results, then there really isn't time to step back because stepping back means your short-term results suffer. And so it becomes very hard to do new things in old organizations. So it's not that this is just like, oh, you know, there's money to be made in sustainability, go do it. It's not like this. It's hard. But this is the good news because if it's hard, you can be first. And you can glean the results of really pioneering. And it requires, I mean, this goes back to the first question you asked me, really doing this, I think, requires having a purpose beyond simply getting through the day or making money, because it's tough. It's emotionally tough. You know, turning to everyone who works for you and saying, well, what's your purpose Some people are like, I'm here to get paid. You know, why do you want to know about my personal life? I mean, that can be a very hard conversation to start. And treating people with dignity and respect and really trusting them and letting them take the lead, that's something that is not what many conventional managers do. Um, Perhaps more so in Europe. I'm more familiar with the kind of hardcore American style. Um, So it's hard to do. But the fact that it's hard to do means that there is competitive advantage to be had if, if you pioneer. But do you find some kind of common denominator in the leaders that do this, like Eric and others? Like, what is it that made them do it and to hang in there and to kind of work for it? It's very interesting. I meet two kinds of leaders who are doing this. One are old-fashioned leaders who are just very smart, (laughs) you know, who can see that the world is changing. And, um, you know, I've met some of them and they're like, Rebecca, I don't know about this purpose stuff, but my industry is really shifting. I have to make the investments. So I have met more conventional managers who are shifting. The majority... You know, it's really interesting. Often they have a spiritual practice or they're deeply engaged with their community or their family. I would say they have another anchor. They're excellent leaders. I I think you can't do this unless you're an excellent leader in the conventional sense, but they, they have a heart that is really right there. I mean, I had the great good fortune of running Paul Pullman's first strategic retreats right after he took over at CEO at Unilever, the big consumer goods company. And I was hugely honored. I had a history of working with Unilever that he said, you know, I want to have my first, my meetings with my top 50 people, and we're going to talk about the future. And would you facilitate those? And it was amazing to do. And I mean, I learned two things. One, this change is not easy. 
I mean, Paul is a fantastic leader in this space and people look to Unilever, but I was there at the beginning. And I promise you at the beginning, when he raised this, people would look at him and say, very interesting, Paul. What about the deodorant business in Indonesia? <laughs> so I mean, it wasn't an easy thing. It took many years to move the corporation. But the other thing about Paul that was so impressive is he could move from being the most detail-oriented, like I've looked at your numbers in the deodorant business in Indonesia and what's happening to the marketing budget. And, you know, I, I, he was totally focused in the details of the organization. He was a very good business person. And then he could shift into a talk about how Unilever had a billion, a billion customers every day. And if we really put force behind the soap brand, the Lifebuoy brand, this team could save millions of lives. I mean, it, was, it was amazing. And I think the leaders I've seen in this space, they can hold the tension between, yes, you have to focus on the bottom line. How do you talk to your investors? got to be hard-nosed. And, but what are we here for? What are we really about? What could this company do? And it's, it's that tension, blending, being able to hold both those roles that for me makes these leaders special. And I'm just curious, in his case, um, over the years, did he lose a couple of leaders on the way and others came in that were more attracted by his way of thinking? Or was it more like to stick with it and then they kind of got the flow? It's very interesting. Uh, there are others who know more about the transformation than I do. But what I saw from the outside is it wasn't a massive changeover of people. And indeed, that fits with what I see at other firms. Um, sometimes the very senior people who have sort of clawed their way up and are very committed to a more conventional style of management, sometimes they do leave. But for everybody sort of down below in the heart of the company, it, it's such an exciting way to think about work. And what they did was they Unilever ran personal purpose workshops so they put people through workshops where everybody had the chance to really sit down and say, what is it I want out of life? Where do I want to go? Could my job be part of what I want to accomplish in the world? And they saw other people doing that. And they built deep personal relationships. And again, this wasn't a six-month process. And they were smart. They started in particular businesses where this style of managing had a possibility of really making a difference. So pick your places, make sure you can win. But then once you have a few businesses really firing on all cylinders and people can see that this makes a difference, then you can roll it out across the organization. Mm. So yeah, there are people who don't like this touchy-feely stuff, but uh, in my experience, they're usually a minority. Most people are really excited at the idea of, of, of their day-to-day -day work actually having an impact on the problems we face. And, and going back to you, Rebecca, what would you say is your passion? You know, that word that comes from patire, which is, you know, in Latin means really to be willing to suffer for something if needed. Well, I'm always a bit embarrassed about this because I am a, a tree hugger. I really am. I love trees. Um, you know, I, I opened the book by talking about the fact I, s I seemingly spent most of my adolescence lying on the lower limb of a huge copper beach, reading and looking up at the sky. 
And uh, I felt held and cared for and connected to something much bigger than myself. And, you know, people say that, that tree huggers don't like people. That, that's not been my experience. I, I think the awe of the natural world, you know, when I stand in front of a tree and look at it, it feels to me the most beautiful and amazing thing. And it reminds me that we're all part of of the world. I mean, I have this, this thing in my, in my book where I say, well, you know, I'm a Buddhist and I have good news and bad news. And the good news is you're not going to die. I tell this to all my students at the end of the semester. I say, so the good news is you're not going to die. The bad news is it's, you're not going to die because you don't exist. And, and you think I'm making a religious statement, but I'm not. My first husband was an astrophysicist. We are literally bundles of electrons temporarily held together in a shape. And when we die, because of course we will die, we become part of the rest of the world. It's, it's literally an energy sea. And so for me, connecting with the great trees is a way of connecting with that. And that means... We think we're separate, but we're not really separate. And so compassion and connection, that all flows for me from that, that first passion. But yes, it, it, that's what got me into climate change in the first place, and indeed into this whole area, was the recognition that in many places the trees are dying. The, the great trees are dying, and if the trees die... You know, I'm pretty sure that we'll die too. Yeah, they feel almost like a protector in a way. Mm. And what about transformational points in your life? I mean, we all have had them somehow. Would you share a few? My uh, father went bankrupt and my parents divorced when I was just graduating from university. And that, that's, I think, one of the reasons why I'm very practical. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm on my own. Uh, let, let's make a life here. Um, so I, I think that made me very grounded. The, the second event really was when my, my first husband passed away. I came home from a business trip to find him lying on the, on the floor. It was way before his time. Our son was only 14. You know, I, I learned so many things from his death. The, the, the first thing I learned was the obvious one, which was that I had not paid attention. I had shared my life with an amazing human being and I'd completely taken it for granted. My memory is that literally the last thing we talked about was whether he could pick up the dry cleaning. And it's so easy to let the day-to-day -day details of our life blind us to where we are and what we're doing, to the miracle that I can lift my hand and I can see the sky. So that was really transformational. The, the second thing I learned was um, everybody pretty much has scars. I, I'd had a very fortunate life, a very privileged upbringing. And when my husband, when John died, I started hearing from everyone around me. I mean, I remember walking across the parking lot at my son's school and one of the other parents came up to me, a woman I knew quite well. And she said, I'm so sorry to hear about your loss. Um, I'm leaving my husband. He, he's been physically abusing me for 15 years and I think the children are old enough. <laughs> you know, and, and I heard from people who had, also, had lost their parents at a, a young age, who lost, I mean, 
we're all walking around with scars and and that made me realize again that that we're not as separate as we think my husband was an incredibly successful person professionally the effect was he he worked too hard <laughs> he probably died from overwork and that can sound terrible but but the thing about my first husband and I should say my second cuz I like certain things in a partner is he was passionate about what he did he was an astronomer one of the great astronomers of the 20th century and what he wanted to do was tell people about astronomy he would get on a plane to fly to a high school in California to t- tell them they should keep doing science he came from the wrong tracks side of the tracks in New Jersey and he became the head of the American Astronomical Society. He was the guy who proposed the delisting of Pluto. He met the Pope. And, you know, he really lived his life completely full on. I mean, he loved our son more than you would believe possible. And uh, he was just so excited to have a family. He married a little late. He didn't think he'd have kids. And so the third and last thing I learned was, of course, we're all going to die. The important thing is what we do with our lives. You can't take it with you. You really can't. So pay attention. Everybody is in this together and let's let's do what we can. Wow, Rebecca, I'm I'm almost like tears. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing this. It's really such a, you know, important messages to all of us, I think. Yeah. It's so easy to forget, you know. We get caught up in our to-do lists and we think they're important. They're really not important. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But the people around us are and, and and I include in that a lot what you would call the professional friends that we also have, you know. because mm. uh, I think that when we meet, when we support each other, when we evolve things that are important to us and uh, the, the the system that we so somehow belong to the life that we belong to um that is incredibly important because it, it gives us energy it gives us hope uh, and uh, then then i really feel like one yeah you know you can feel that oneness with the family as well but there's another kind of oneness when you are merging with with professional peers or friends let me double down on that because i think this is very hard work to do and sometimes you know, people say to me, why should I do this work? And I give them a speech about making money, blah, blah, blah. But I think the bottom line is because you will meet the most amazing people and you will feel that you're part of something much bigger than yourself. Hmm. And I I do think that uh, because of the book, I've had the chance to talk to hundreds, I think thousands of people this year. And it's an amazing feeling to realize so many people are committed to driving change. I've made new friendships uh, that just make me optimistic that together we can do this. And uh, and so I, I really agree with you. I, I think, you know, being connected professionally, reaching out, looking for help and giving support is, is a fantastic way of supporting yourself uh, in doing this. And um if you would um, assume that you have all doors open and all kinds of you know resources available to you right now what would you then immediately rush to innovate or, or change you know whether it is within your kind of sphere or or elsewhere can i have can i have two things yes <laughs> the first is um i would wave my wand and we would have 
environmental, social, and governance metrics that measured material things that really had an effect on firm performance and impact that were auditable and replicable and widely shared. <laughs> and investors would be using them. I mean, that that's, I think, really an important precondition for transforming the entire economy. Because it's one thing to stand up and say, I'm going to be purpose-driven, but if you can't measure it, if you can't communicate it to your investors or your customers or your employees, and if people can't hold you to account, what do we have? We have like some nice phrases. So metrics, 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 I think that's really important. And the second thing, if I have this wand, is... (laughs) I want to fix the U.S. political process so that we have real voting rights, um, a real conversation around data and facts, and deep compassion for people who disagree with us. Um, it's, It's super tough living in the U.S. right now, and it can feel as though our society is coming unglued. And, you know, if I can have that wand, I would say... Let's remember that free markets only thrive when we have free politics, that a working society and a working democracy are fundamental to successful business, and that there are some fundamentals that we can agree on, even if we have very different political processes. And one of that is respect for people who disagree with us. Mm -hmm. And another is that everybody should be engaged in the political process. I mean, it's super scary to be in the US right now. Uh, where it looks as though, um, and again, I understand people are very concerned on both sides, but uh, there's so much disagreement and debate. And uh, I think if the US is not a leader in this area, it's a, a significant loss to the world. Mm. Uh, so, so I have a political wish. <laughs> And and then there is, uh, I'm thinking also about uh, inequality and I mean, in just in general, this accumulated unbelievable wealth of a few people, right, that are running. Well, well, but, but Vesna, now, now we're going back to the perfect world I want to see, right? A price for carbon, climate change fixed, really addressing inequality. Um, I, I, I have a, a larger one, <laughs> more waves of it. I absolutely, I, I want racial justice. I want... <laughs> really a recognition that Mm. this concentration of wealth is super dangerous. And I I don't think it's really good even for the very wealthy. Uh, I think it's creating so much rage and alienation and anger um, that, you know, perhaps we'd all rather live in a healthier society with more connection and, and make a little less money at the margin. Yeah, for sure. And if you could give one a piece of advice to, to leaders who are listening right now? I mean, you've already given a lot, but like if there is one thing that you would like them to really pick up. See if you can find some time for reflection in your day. Whether you meditate formally or just sit down with a cup of tea or write in a journal, taking some time to think about what's happening in your life, what you want to accomplish and the people you love, it really is important. I fought this idea for a long time. I lived my life in a frenzy. And when my first husband died, I realized that was really a mistake. If you can find a quiet place to stand or sit every day, um, I think you will find it transforms the quality of your life and your relationships. Thank you. And and if you 
would give advice to yourself some i don't know you picked 10 years or whatever ago is there anything in particular <laughs> slow down girl <laughs> slow down um yeah. you know i was the person who could do everything all the time you know i mm. should have taken it slower um i'm proud of what i've accomplished but uh life is amazing and when one runs too fast you don't see that is your kind of priority in life right now at this very moment very different from just one year ago actually it is yes i've been pushing very hard for the last two or three years uh writing the book um was you know time and attention uh the dean at the harvard business school asked me to take over the first year course in leadership and governance and bring some of these ideas into that first year course which was an incredible thing to do but um at HBS we you know we teach a thousand students at a time so that's a teaching team of 10 and we write our own teaching materials so that meant writing a lot of new cases and doing that while publishing the book and supporting the book was was very intense um so my priority for the next few months is uh, a little embarrassed by this is just to slow down focus on my research and writing uh take a moment to take stock and i think really to think hard about how do we drive the changes we need in the time we have we have very little time our environment is under enormous stress climate change is real You see huge heat domes in the western US right now way early in the summer and our societies are becoming unglued so what is it that we can do how do we drive change as fast as we need to and um Rebecca my last question to you is this one what do you think the world needs most at this very time <laughs> I love the way you ask these little small questions. <laughs> <laughs> What does the world need right now? Oh, compassion. Conversation. Space. It's a really hard time. I'm on the board of an NGO that supports peace building conversations in war zones. They work in places like the Middle East. They were instrumental in places like Northern Ireland they're starting up an effort in the US they think the conversation is so difficult and so toxic that the skills they developed in Israel and Palestine they want to bring to the US you know <laughs> <laughs> more empathy more compassion more time less rage i think that's what we need and a price for carbon <laughs> exactly add that in <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I think also what we would call you know we need true leadership and also because you know this this quote by by is it Lennon I think like a dream you dream alone is just a dream but a dream you dream together is reality right so also for that reason so I have this dream that maybe 30% of business leaders understand the problems we face and why we need to act and they start acting And my dream is that catalyzes change across the entire society. That when you see someone in your industry tackling these problems and making money, you say, "Well, yeah, I can do that too." That these leaders will catalyze cooperation because there are many problems that can only be addressed when everyone acts together. 
And so we're seeing people step up and say, okay, let's all address deforestation together. Let's all raise wages. Let's all improve the educational system in the regions where we operate. So, you know, these kinds of leaders can drive change far beyond their own firm. And I think ultimately, we can see a real shift in how we think about business from, you know, I put my head down and make money and lots of kids saying, you know, business is evil. I get that. But, you know, people say business is evil to business being a valued partner in building a just and sustainable world. So um, I always forget to say that, Vesna, because that's like the whole point of the book. (laughs) 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 That's my dream. Um, And I think, you know, we need compassion and connection and political change and and everything. but, But it's a cohort of leaders who understand the need to move in this direction and have the courage and the strength to do so. And I think the good news is this isn't a pipe dream. Yeah, that's the beauty it, of it, really. It's actually happening. Thank you so much, um, Rebecca. So, but uh, how was it to be on this podcast for you? It was really fun. Yeah, no, you ask great questions. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thanks for sharing everything. To find out more, everybody will find also links and show notes on corporateunflagged.com and also links to your books and everything else. Um, so remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with people you know would benefit from hearing Rebecca. Please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. And um, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Ciao, Rebecca. Thanks. Thanks.